Will you say this with me? God will never fail. God will never fail. Thank you. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be the one, be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hanel to the king's winepress. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, on, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This 
shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in which in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Amen. Thank you, Anna. So if you want a copy of the notes, they're on the BLT. I just wanted my opportunity to say BLT. Um, So today's the start of Advent, as Eric mentioned, and that's a four-week season leading up to Christmas, which historically the church has prepared their hearts for that um, and that celebration leading into Christmas. It's an anticipation, first and foremost, of Christ's coming, his first coming, when the God-man took on human flesh as a babe in Bethlehem to save his people from their sins. But the Advent season is also a time that historically the church has looked ahead forward to the hope of what? Christ's what? Second coming, his promised future return when he he will come to rescue his people, restore this broken world that we live in, and reign forever as Lord and King. Are you guys excited about that, that coming? One of my favorite scenes in the movies based on Tolkien or Tolkien, however you want to say it, it's Lord of the Ring trilogy, was the scene from the Battle of Helm's Deep. You guys know that scene in the movie or, or the book. For those not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf uh, is at times portrayed by Tolkien as a Christ figure, kind of like Aslan with the lion with C.S. Lewis's uh, Tales of Narnia. And in the movie Return of the King, Gandalf arrives in the nick of time in an epic battle when the good guys have almost lost all hope. They're outnumbered, they're surrounded, they're undone by the enemy. And then Gandalf appears on the scene leading a charge on a magnificent, magnificent steed and he's clothed in a white robe and he has armies of rescuers on horses at his side and they're charging fearlessly down the hill into enemy territory to liberate his friends who are overcome in the battle. And here comes Gandalf at dawn, at sunrise. He comes with power. He comes with light. He comes in victory, and he comes just like he said he would earlier in the book. And I can't help but think about the powerful scene Uh, in that movie as we look at Zechariah 14 this morning and we close out the book of Zechariah. And everybody said, oh, it was such a good book. As we finish the end of this book, um, I love what Zechariah prophesies in this last chapter and how we get a glimpse at the end of time of what's awaiting for the people of God as Jesus returns. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18 in the New Testament says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, that's at his coming, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. You see Gandalf, right? 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, we who are left will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, right? Psalm 88 at the beginning of the service says, everybody's left me. All my friends have left me. Darkness is my only companion. In the end words of the book of Revelation, the end of the book of Zechariah 14, 1 Thessalonians says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The title of my sermon is Awaiting the Coming King and Our Glorious Future. In Zechariah 14, the main theme is clear. It is a coming day. Zechariah refers to it as that day. So if you're reading through Zechariah 14, you can highlight every time it says that day. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 13, verse 20. That day is the day in the future when the Lord himself will come again to rescue his people, to renew this present world, to bring judgment on his enemies and restore unhindered worship of himself in every heart. And as we look at Zechariah 14, I want you to remember this. There's a lot of apocalyptic language there, just like in the book of Revelation. What does that mean? That means that this is symbolic language. This is imagery that Zechariah is using to paint a picture for us of what it will look like when King Jesus, the true Messiah, returns in all of his glory on that day. But first, before that glorious day, Zechariah wants to give us a word a word to God's people about what we should expect before that glorious day gets there. And what, God, what, what do we expect? What do you think, guys? My first point, the return of the king will be preceded by the suffering of God's people. You didn't want me to say that, did you? But that is true. Have you ever been thrown off by incorrect expectations? Any married people out here? <laughs> you thought the Thanksgiving was at your mom's, but come to find out it was at your brother's, Right? Or you thought the dress attire for the party was casual, but you got there and it was formal. Or you thought your wife was going to pick up the kids at school, but she actually told you to do it. And so they had a field trip for two hours and whatever, and you didn't get them, right? How did that incorrect expectation shape the way you handled that situation? Well, in Zechariah 14, God is preparing us for his coming. And he wants us to know that the period of time before he comes back is not going to be filled with easy sailing, but instead his people will suffer greatly. It's depicted here in Zechariah 14 as the city of Jerusalem being surrounded by the nations in, in battle. They're undergoing siege. The city will be, look at all this severe language, plundered, women raped, half the people of God are going into exile. That's extreme suffering for the people of God. And my question is, what are your expectations for your life as a believer between now and the time Jesus comes back? Are you expecting your best life now? Jesus says, they hated me, so they'll hate you, John 15. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know why this is, guys, but every time I go through affliction as a believer, even though I know all the right answers theologically, I'm like, what's going on? This is not supposed to be happening. I'm a child of God. I'm like, I know the truth. I was recently talking to a Christian friend uh, over lunch, who's recounting a time in 2008 when his hours got reduced at work. He lost significant pay. He didn't know his how his family was going to make it. His car broke down. His dog got hit by a car. And then he had to pay for a major surgery for that dog. And it happened all in the same time period. That's what's in store for the people of God, this side of Christ's return, right? 
Maybe that's you. You're a believer and you're seeking to be faithful to God as you wait for his return, but you feel like it's just one thing after another just pummeling you. Unbelieving family, not getting saved, a broken down car, a deceased relative, a sick child, or like Jen Schottleitner put it, they're planning a new church and she's articulating that she's expecting, like in the book of Acts, for all hell to break loose against the church in that area as they move forward with the gospel. God wants to remind us something in these opening verses of Zechariah 14. We should expect suffering as we live for his glory and serve him faithfully. Let's not be surprised by that. As John Newton, the hen writer, wrote, it's through many dangers, toils, and snares that we have already come, right? But grace has kept us, and grace will lead us home. The pathway leading to Christ's return is not smooth and easy. It's scattered with landmines and barbed wire for the people of God. But God wants us to know that even through our circumstances, even though they seem out of control, they aren't outside of his control. We aren't sovereign. The nations aren't sovereign. Satan and his demons aren't sovereign. Zechariah 14.2 says God is sovereign over all of our suffering. He says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. An all-powerful, an all-loving, an all-wise God is orchestrating our suffering, and we can rest in that fact. My question this morning for myself is, do I live like that, and do I submit to that reality in faith, and does that bring us comfort? The text that Eric preached last week in Zechariah 13.9 mentioned our trials in this life will be part of what God uses to sanctify us in our faith and to deepen our love for Jesus and our future home in heaven, right? Trials don't deepen our love for ourselves and this life and this world that's broken. It deepens our love for God who's coming to rescue us in our eternal home. And God wants us to remind us that this life right now is not our glorious future. Where's our hope? Do you orient your life in your heart, in your schedule, and your expectations like this life is your glorious future? If you do, you'll be always depressed and hopeless. But if you orient your life and your heart like Jesus is your ultimate future and the world he's bringing anew, then you can have hope and joy in the midst of this difficulty. Second point, the return of the king will be a day of rescue for God's people, verses 3 through 5. The return of the king will be a day of rescue for God's people. Here's the encouragement. Listen for a second. You've been going through difficulty. You posted stuff on GroupMe. You've got a private prayer that you haven't told anybody about, only God knows. You've got those Psalm 88 struggles that you're like, my life is a mess. Here's the encouragement in the second point. The suffering and difficulty and persecutions of God's people will not last forever. Just meditate on that for a second. To use Paul's wording in the New Testament, no matter how hard and how long your suffering is in this life, compared with the coming eternal weight of glory, all your affliction and difficulty in this life will be light and momentary. That's what this text is teaching. The rescue at dawn is coming from our divine deliverer, right? Imagine again Gandalf swooping in at the battle of Helm's Deep. Zechariah tells us at the height of God's people suffering and distress that God doesn't send a messenger. He doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send an angel. He comes himself. 
in power and glory to rescue his people. Verse three, we see that the Lord will go out and fight. Verse four in Zechariah 14, he shall stand on that mountain, right? Verse five, then the Lord will come and all the holy ones with him. It's like all the powerful war movies that you've seen. You know, those war movies where they go in, they rescue the POWs, right? And they don't stop at anything to get there and liberate or like every good love story rescue that you've seen, right? I was thinking about the Princess Bride this week, and my kids were like quoting it, Mowage brings us together, right? Wesley won't stop at, at anything until Princess Buttercup is safely rescued from Prince Humperdinck's castle, no matter the odds, right? Verse three here says, it's God versus the nations, plural. Who's gonna win that battle? <laughs> it's amazing, right? Verse four, you get more of the theophany vibe, God coming down to rescue. God is coming in and the natural order of things is being turned on its head and it looks like an earthquake splitting the Mount of Olives in half, right? And when that, that earthquake com comes, it, pr it produces a huge wide valley. Now remember, the nations have surrounded God's people in Jerusalem and to the east of the city of Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley, okay? So... Jerusalem, Kidron Valley, boop. And then over east of that is the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is a two and a half mile long mountain that runs from the north to the south. And here's the thing, you're, you're trapped in Jerusalem and you go to flee. You can't flee in the Kidron Valley, right? And you can't flee over this mountain range because it's there. And the idea is this, when the Lord comes back, he's gonna open up this rescue route, right? From Jerusalem through the valley to the mountain of olives to a safe location that is unknown in Azel. But here's the thing. When God opens that return route, nothing is going to stop him from getting to his people and for him to get to them. Not enemies, not mountains, not earthquakes. He's going to get there. And you may say, well, what about me? Is God going to be able to rescue me? I mean, life is hard and things are difficult. I don't think I can make it to that day. But I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He said, your eternal future is going to be imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept for you in heaven. And the next verse he says, basically, God's going to make sure he gets you there by his power. He's going to ensure that. You're going to be kept by his power through faith until that day. Now, the earthquake mentioned in that text that says from Uzziah's day is mentioned in Amos 1.1. And the point is this, that earthquake was legendary. It's like what happens when people, people talk about hurricanes in U.S. history. They say, you remember Katrina in 2005? Now, that was a hurricane, right? It brought so much devastation. That's power. And here in Zechariah, they're saying, you thought Uzziah's earthquake was big? but wait until God touches down. Now that's gonna be big. That's gonna be powerful when God comes back for his people. That's gonna be ultimate power. But in that return and in that earthquake, you're not gonna be running from the point of impact. You're gonna be running to the point of impact, Jesus. And when he comes in saving power like never before, it's gonna be a glorious day. It's, you're going to flee to him. It's going to be the day of your salvation. Like Matthew 16, 27 says, for the son of man is going to come in glory, the glory of his father and with his angels. 
Christians, our suffering won't last forever. Christ is coming again for his people. Third point, the return of the king will be a day of renewal for God's people or God's world. The return of the king will be a day of renewal for God's world. That's verses 6 through 11. Think about our broken world. Adam's fall into sin in Genesis 3 brought with it a host of problems. Like what? Rebellion towards God, broken relationships, a broken body, but also it placed a curse on God's good creation, his good world. Thorn and thistle, right? Genesis 3, difficulty in in, uh, having kids, difficulty at work, sickness, suffering, pain. Romans 8, 18 through 21 says it like this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, guys. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 2 Peter 3, 12 through 13 says it like this, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, but according to his promise... We are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our coming home, right? The renewed creation. Zechariah 14, verses 6 through 11, it's an Old Testament prophetic glimpse into what God is going to do at the second coming when he restores the universe he's made and brings in the new heavens and the new earth because of what Christ has done. And I'm going to break this down into four sections as we talk about that day that we long to see. But the first part, verse 6 through 7, it will be a day of new creation and never-ending light. So look at verse 6 through 7. It's interesting. It's really hard to, to translate in the original language. But the idea is that on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost In the ESV version, it says it'll be a unique day. Other translations say it will be a first day. And what does that mean? Well, the allusion is to Genesis 1, when God spoke the world into existence. God is saying here in this text that a coming day is upon us when the creation will be like it was before it got broken by sin. It will be restored like at first So initially, the first day of history, light and darkness weren't separated and therefore didn't exist. But as God continued to create, he made the day in which part of it was covered with light, the daytime, and part of it was covered with what? Darkness, that's the nighttime. But when the new creation comes, Zachariah says something very interesting. You're gonna have something unexpected. There's gonna be light when there shouldn't be light. There's gonna be light in the evening time. You guys see that? In the text, what's the point? The darkness will be swallowed up with everlasting light on that day. No more shadows, no more scary, no more bad dreams, no more darkness concealing bad deeds, no more darkness blocking out truth, no more evil, everlasting light. Revelation 21.1 says it like this, Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Revelation 22 says it like this. They will see his face, that's God's face, and his name will be on their foreheads and the night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So it's gonna be a day of never ending light, but verse eight through nine, it's also gonna be a day of never ending life. On that day, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem to the Eastern Sea, that's the Dead Sea, and to the Western Sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. The life-giving water will ultimately extend across the whole world and will never run dry regardless of the season. It doesn't matter. Imagine the transformation that would take place when you take a plot of stony, rocky soil, maybe it's your front yard, I don't know, and you drop a huge bag of fertilizer on top of it and you turn the sprinklers on and you never turn them off. What's gonna happen there? Well, you might get a new Eden. (laughs) You might get paradise in the midst of South Carolina, in the midst of a desert scenario. And the idea from Zechariah is that the new creation, there's gonna be no more decaying trees. I know you love them. The leaves are pretty, right? But there's gonna be no more dead deer on the side of the road. Thank God for that. There's gonna be no more broken bodies with sickness. No more funerals that we have to attend. Isaiah 25, eight says it like this. God will swallow up death forever. Romans 8, 28, 23 says it like this. We're gonna see the redemption of our bodies and all the people over 40 said amen, right? Why? Hebrews 2, 14 says, all because Jesus partook of our flesh and blood. He died for our sins and through his death, he did that so he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver us all from fear who are subjected to lifelong slavery. It's not just never, uh, never ending light and never ending life, but verse nine says on that day, we'll see and experience the Lord's never ending rule. The Lord will be king over all the earth, verse nine. You say, I thought Jesus already was king. Isn't he? I mean, he came and he lived and died and resurrected and he's ruling in heaven right now in all of his glory and majesty. He is already king, right? Well, like Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ is not Lord over all. And over which Christ does not exclaim, that's mine, that's my possession, all the earth currently. Christians, we see that and know that reality now theologically by faith, but one day that faith is gonna become sight, right? In the future on that day, the reality of his rule will be universally experienced by every person and by all nations and by all continents on that day. And no one on that day will be able to deny it. Right now, you tell your lost friends, Jesus is ruling. They're like, you got all this suffering in your life. Jesus isn't ruling. You're like, he is, I believe it. And you say, well, one day you're gonna see it. You're gonna see that rule. And it's gonna be manifested to all. Like 1 Corinthians 15, 24 talks about, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. On that day, that coming day, we will not mistake who's in charge. We might right now, but on that day we'll know it's not any specific politician, it's not even any specific sports star or drug lord or businessman, it'll be Christ. And verse nine says the Lord will be one. It's not saying the Lord's divided in any way. The idea is that the Lord's kingship and authority will be perfectly seen and experienced on that day. He will be the sole and supreme object of worship. He will be first and we will see him as he is. 
that coming day also, verse 10 through 11, is also a day where we'll experience his never-ending peace and safety. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me if you're following along in Zechariah 14. The question becomes, why the detailed naming of landmarks near Jerusalem? You're like, what's the deal? There's something on the east, west, north, and south. The point here is that mountains help hide and protect you from the enemy, right? Jerusalem was on the mountains, surrounded by mountains. But on this coming day, when the Lord comes back, on that day, the people of God won't need anything to defend them. (laughs) They won't need any protection because God will have defeated all their enemies. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Imagine, no more need for car alarms, right? Praise God for that, right? Or no more need for security systems or cybersecurity because there will be no more hackers, or persecutors, or thieves, or rapists, like the first verses of Zechariah 14, because God will defeat his people's enemies. And the land surrounding the city might as well be turned into a flat, extended football field, or ultimate frisbee field, or park, because you won't need the mountains to hide the people of God. But God doesn't just bring peace from our enemies on that day. He's also bringing peace from ourselves on that day, our inward enemy of sin. Look at verse 11. It says, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. You're like, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's a flashback to a reference in Joshua during the conquest of Canaan when the people of God were first moving into the promised land and certain cities got bans or decrees on them that were placed because of the city's sinfulness. And what God would say with those bans or decrees is that they need to be totally destroyed because of their wickedness. But here's the the conflicting thing. Later on, the prophets began to take that same kind of language of ban or decree to explain why the people of God had been utterly destroyed or taken away in exile. So the people of God were struggling with the same sinful things in realities. But on that coming day, our outward enemies as well as our inward sin enemies will never again hinder our peace or our joy because God is going to remove sin from his people on that day. Instead of judge his people who deserve judgment too, just like the enemies of God, because we've done wicked things, we've done things that we regret, we've done things that dishonor the Lord and disqualify us from bringing his kids. Instead of that, he will give us grace and mercy on that day, and he will judge our enemies all because of Christ. Point four, the return of the king will be a day of judgment for God's enemies, verses 12 through 15. Zechariah 14, three through five, talked about God's people's rescue, but what about God's enemies? It's gonna be a judgment like you can't imagine. Look at this language, it's so severe, verse 12. It starts with this plague language that gets repeated over and over again until the end of the book. The idea is that at Jesus' second coming, it's gonna be like another exodus for God's people. You remember the Exodus story? You guys remember? The people of God were in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then God through Moses brings about the 10 plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt to deliver his people from slavery and to ultimately get them to the promised land. And as people walked through on dry land and God struck down their enemies through the Red Sea until there was none left. And the people who struck God's people in Zechariah 14, 1 through 2 are now being struck by God. 
The imagery there is so gruesome. It's like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You guys, for those who are old enough to have seen it, remember all that face melting? Well, that's the idea here. The nations at war with God's people are cursed in that moment of Christ's return and instantaneously rot their eyes, their tongues, their flesh. Verse 13, they're struck with great fear and begin to fight among themselves. The idea is that their fellow warriors, their fellow unbelievers that they trusted in for strength and protection now become their foes and part of their downfall on that day. Verse 14, the mention of all the military animals in the camps. You're like, what's that all about? We could say instead of donkeys and horses, we could say cars and tanks and jets. All those things that gave the enemies of God the advantage over God's people. All those things and machines and animals that they trusted in for their deliverance and to have that edge over God's people will ultimately be cursed and destroyed. And verse 13 says, and all the wealth they took from the people of God in this life, from theft, intimidation, dishonesty, unfair wages, cybercrime, money laundering, embezzlement, fraud, war, will all be, verse 13, returned to the people of God. And think about this. All the wealth the people of God missed out on because they chose to follow Jesus will also be returned. People in this life who had no place to lay their head because they're following Jesus and all the wealth, wealth they gave away to the poor or to fund mission in their neighborhood or mission through their church will then on that last day become an inheritance that can never be broken in or stolen or moth and rust will never be able to destroy it will come a crown that we get to turn around and lay at Jesus' feet. On that day, all that the loss that we had will return to us and we'll have an eternal home, an eternal family, and a forever father that can never be removed from us. Paul was right, 1 Corinthians 3.21, all things are ours, God's people. Though we can't see it that way now, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are ours and you are Christ and Christ is God. And on that day, that coming day, everything will be returned to its rightful owners, all those who are children of God and heirs of Christ. See, the future judgment of God's enemies is bleak. And these, Im uh, these images, I think, in Zechariah 14 are ultimately alluding to hell itself. Remember 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, it says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Fifth and finally, the return of the king will be a day of, un, of unhindered worship to God. Verse 16 through 21. Now, I'm going to admit that this section is very hard to understand, but it seems like in the future, the reign of God will not only be demonstrated by the destruction of his enemies, but by the worship of his people. See, I don't think the point in verses 16 through 19 is that after Jesus comes back as, as a second coming and judges his enemies, that there will be any survivors or second chances. I don't think that's what's, 
on display right here through the imagery and the symbolism. I don't even think the point of the text is that there will be a thousand-year millennial reign. I actually don't think that's personally what that's talking about here. I think symbolically God is showing us through this text the difference between a non-Christian heart and a Christian heart on his coming on that day. On that day, every eye will see him. And like Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord or Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here's what's gonna happen on that day when Jesus comes back. Believers will do that bowing and confessing and worship from their heart. They want to. Non-believers on that day when Jesus returns, they're gonna do it begrudgingly and unwillingly having to say, Jesus is truly Lord. I finally see that and admit that, right? On that day, believers will declare Jesus's lordship over the world and they'll do it with joy and thanksgiving. You're back, Jesus, yes. And, it, and unbelievers will acknowledge this truth for all of eternity with resentment and ingratitude, still wanting to be the Lord of their lives, even in hell. And Zechariah seems to highlight this in the future of unbelievers when he says, they will be forced to go up to Jerusalem year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. There's nothing like forced worship, right guys? What's the motivation in verse 16 and, and, and following? If you don't do this worship stuff, you're gonna get the stick, right? You're gonna get judgment. What's the motivation for the unbeliever? Well, if I don't worship, I'm in trouble. More plagues, the text says. No rain. No rain means no food. No food means I, I'm hungry or my family gets sick or my family doesn't survive or I can't trade for other things that I actually really love the things I actually love above God, I better do this worship thing. I better go to Jerusalem annually and keep and celebrate the Feast of Booze. That's the Pilgrim's Fest Festival, which was a celebration that specifically focused on the Lord's kingship, that focused on his sovereignty over the crops. and was a time of Thanksgiving, kind of like our Thanksgiving day. I better do that. But in this life, God's people are not motivated out of fear, fear of punishment. They're motivated out of faith to remember and worship their king, their father and savior. They worship not because they want to escape punishment, but because God has taken their punishment in Christ ultimately. Unbelievers can't worship God no matter how much they are threatened by punishment and judgment because they don't see Jesus's beauty. They don't see his worth. They don't see his kingship. They don't see his authority. They desperately need God to act in their lives. And maybe that's you today. They need new birth. They need the spirit of God working in their heart to cause them to love him. And verse 20 through 21 shows us that what is coming for God's people on that future day, because currently, even though our hearts are born again, we still struggle with our worship and it's hindered, right? You guys think that sometimes your worship's hindering? But on that day, here's the point as the book ends. On that day, our ongoing struggle called sanctification, our ongoing struggle with worshiping God like he ought to be will finally be complete. We will be glorified on that day. And that's how the book ends. It's very cool. Zachariah says it like this. Even the unclean things like bells on horses' harnesses, you see that there, will be clean before the Lord and completely and utterly surrendered to the Lord. There will no longer be any unclean thing. There will no longer be any sin. And look at all the language with the pots. 
And the common pots in the house of the Lord that weren't used for sacrifice because they weren't ritualistically the right ones will now all be used in worship before the Lord, right? Not just the ones in the, the certain parts of the temple, but all the pots in the temple. And that communicates that there will no longer be this compartmentalization that exists even among Christians who says, God, you can have every area of my life, but not this one. This one's mine. Or God, this activity in my life is too ordinary for you to care about. Truly, you don't care about my taxes. Truly, you don't care about how I I talk to other people. Truly, you don't care about how I talk to my kids. I can't do this part for your glory. But on that day, they're going to see beyond that. See beyond the, the division of sacred and secular, that it's all sacred to the Lord. And on that day, they're not going to need just all the pots in the temple, but they're going to need all the pots in Jerusalem to worship. Not because worship will have been forced or demanded in any way, but because they are going to personally long to worship God. And they're like, give me a pot so I can worship, so I can worship and sacrifice You see that in the last lines of Zechariah, it says, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Traitor is literally Canaanite, but the point here is not nationality. The point is that some people came in the temple to worship claiming to be God's people, but they were really just there to make money in the temple. They wanted to take advantage of God's people who had come in to really actually worship and they wanted to make money off of it. And Zechariah is saying on that day, At the Lord's coming, all greed will be gone. All the impurities in our worship will be taken away. All the false worship will be taken away. And on that day, we'll remain genuine, joyful, sacrificial worship of the King, unhindered. Everything, every day, every person, every activity, every heart will be wholly devoted to the Lord. And I can't wait for that, that day when all the sin and idolatry in our own hearts is taken away and we can worship God fully for who he is and what he's, what he's done. Paul put it like this in Romans 8.30, and those who he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, guess what? Well, we'll be glorified. John echoes this reality when he shows us a picture of the heavenly throne room in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is the glorious future for the people of God. A couple of applications and then we'll move into the Lord's Supper. Because the return of the king will be preceded by suffering for God's people, Do you believe that you won't always be going through darkness and under suffering and sick, sickness? Do you believe that that rescue is coming? The church will not always be per- persecuted and taken advantage of. If that's true, let's rejoice today in our sufferings, in our test- testing, because we know what the end of the story is. Will you live like justice will actually be, by, be served by someone who's really actually holy and just. So we don't have to take it in our hands and we don't have to take revenge in our hands. We don't have to believe like people are gonna get away with everything. The cross is spoken. Jesus has paid for his people's sins and for those who did not repent and believe, hell will come for them to bring final justice. 
Also application, if the return of the king, it will be a day of renewal for God's world and God's creation. Will you believe this and stop trying to find your never-ending light and life and Lord's reign in the now? Confess your idolatry over creation and yourself. Repent and make Jesus your greatest treasure. Trust him and the glorious future that's coming later. And sacrifice whatever he's calling you to now in this life because we know our true hope is on the horizon. Remember, the return of the king will be a day of judgment for God's enemies. And if you are one of God's enemies today, my encouragement to you is to repent and believe the gospel. Romans 5, 9 says, Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's the hope for you today if you're a non-believer. You can be reconciled to God by the death of his son, and he can make you his child. Also, in light of the fact that God's enemies will be judged, if you're a Christian today, it's just an encouragement continually that we shouldn't envy the lost. We should serve, love, and pray for them in the now because we know that God's going to take care of everything in the end. Final application, the return of the king will be a day of unhindered worship to God, verse 16 through 21. If you believe this reality, what's the sin that God's calling you to to fight in this life? The ultimate future is glorification completely, no more sin. So in the reality right now, what is God calling us to to fight in this life? Leave no stone unturned. Don't like, act like any area of your life is off limits to God. Don't go to church on Sunday, but say the rest of the days are for you, right? Don't like, act like any activity that is in your life cannot be done out of love for God and for his glory. All of it can be used for him. And let's pray as a church that all of our life will be surrendered in worship, like a Romans 12 life. Our lives will be given before God, our, wa- our wallets, our family, our life, our existence, all laid on the altar, all wholly devoted to the Lord. This is our hopeful future, our glorious future. Our King is coming. Let's pray together.